Well, welcome. It is the Lord's Day, and I know we celebrated Easter last weekend, and praise God, but really, we celebrate Easter every Lord's Day. This is why we call it the Lord's Day. This is the day where we recognize Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and guests, if you're here in person or online, we're so thankful that you would join us. You are welcome to be here. Who we are at Evergreen SUVs is we're all about Jesus Christ. In no unclear terms, we're about Christ. And we are praying and moving towards the emphasis of discipleship. And the Bible is central to our lives here at Evergreen and for any other Christian. So today, I just want to give you a preview, church family. We're moving from, uh, last week we concluded our Church Matters series on relationships, right? We talked about all the various types of relationships in the church this week. This week, we're still in the, our church series called Church Matters, but now into body life. Body life. And this is where God has ordered how life in the church should be conducted. God gives us clear direction on how order should be handled in the life of the church. Amen? And so chapters 11 and 14 through 1 Corinthians talks about things such as the Lord's Supper or communion, how we're to conduct communion, how we're to minister our spiritual gifts to serve the body, right? Talks Chapter 13 is a very famous chapter on how love should be central in everything that we do, how we love Christ and how we love one another and what love will look like. Then we'll get into prophecies and tongues. Well, that'll, that'll be a fun series. They're part of the series. And then, but today, we're talking about God's order for men and women. God has given us direct and def- uh, clear order and how men and women are to conduct themselves. So we'll be at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. It's towards uh, probably the last fourth of your Bible if you're if you haven't turned to Corinthians uh, often, there's a Second Corinthians as well. But we're in First Corinthians chapter 11, 2 through 16. Now, this is one of the challenging passages. I think challenging in a couple ways because of our cultural context. But also, there's so many cultural things that Paul addresses that were very clear 2,000 years ago in Corinth. So my job is to go back in time. To go back into a time ship to understand what did these things mean? What did head coverings mean? What did long hair signify? What did shaved head signify? All those things. What did it mean for a man, for a woman? And so today, we're going to hop into a time ship and go back in time 2,000 years. That's how you study the Bible. You go back in time to when it was written so that we understand what Paul or the various authors of the Bible are talking about. So let's go back in time. In the Roman world, women were treated as second-class citizens in no unclear terms. This is what it was. In, in, in some instances, very inhumane treatment was taking place, almost treated like property, like property, if you could imagine that. Husbands disposed their wives at will. They didn't like something about their wives. They initiated divorce. Husbands freely uh, frequented themselves with prostitutes and others. This was just a way of life. No respect, no regard. And minimal rights were given to women. Okay, so this is the Roman world. And therefore, what happened was this. During that time, if we were to go back in time, we would have noticed something happening in that time. 
A militant feministic movement will start to take place in the Roman Empire. What do I mean by that is this. Women start to demand to be treated like men. Women abandoned their husbands and their children. Raising of children was viewed as kind of restricting their freedoms. This is infringing upon my rights and privileges. This is cramping my style to be a mother. Women started demanding jobs that were traditionally held by men. Women began to dress like men, get hairstyles like men, short, even shaved hair to look like men. And discarded feminine qualities. They wanted to act like men. Here's a quote from a juvenile. Juvenile is a Roman poet of the day. And this is what he described seeing. Women joined in men's hunts with spears in hand and breasts exposed and took to pig sticking. He went on to write, What modesty can you expect in a woman who wears a helmet, abjures her own sex, and delights in feats of strength? This is what was happening. So the Roman culture was blurring gender lines. There is no difference between men and women. It was getting blurred. As if the culture was getting eraser and kind of smudging the lines between men and women. And the culture was starting to seep and in, creep into the cult, to cult, to, into the culture of the church at Corinth. Things were happening in the life of the church where Paul needed to address something. So the ideas of, uh, of this cultural phenomenon along with Christian liberties, hey, I'm free. That's right. This is agreeable to me. This was starting to take place in the church, no regard for how it affected the one another's, no regard for how, how, how men were treated, no regard how women were treated. This is kind of just happening. So Paul needed to step in and make it very clear what God has said from the very beginning since creation. And so let's keep that context in mind, okay, as we read 1 Corinthians 11. That's just the context to set up the, the scriptures here, okay? Because as we read this, I want us to feel what it felt like. Imagine yourself in that time. So let's rise. We do this guest to honor God's word. We have a treasure called the Bible. When we know, we believe that when we read it and we understand what it says, we're actually hearing from God himself. So 1 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered him to you. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved." For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man has, was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 11. However, Paul writes, However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has her, his birth 
through the woman. And all things originate from God. All things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Finish up here. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved your word through the, through the Bible. I pray by your Holy Spirit that we will understand your word. And most importantly, we will know you more, Jesus, how you think, so that we could love you more and trust you more. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. The sermon title is called Headship. Headship. Good job. I see some of you putting your hands on your head. Good job. Today, just like the Roman culture 2,000 years ago, the lines of gender distinction is getting blurred. As I described Rome to you, you might have been thinking, hmm, that sounds kind of familiar to what's happening today. I mean, this is an unprecedented time. We're in a time of crisis right now, church family unprecedented time where there is a systematic hear me now there's a systematic and ultra aggressive approach to blurring all distinction between men and women do you know what i'm talking about if you don't i'm going to point out some highlights that's been happening in the last couple years all disciplines in our culture and society are coming alongside us and participating what do i mean by that in the area of medicine they're using terms such as sex assigned at birth as if it's kind of that's just an arbitrary thing as if you could change that someday in english we're using different pronouns to describe different people you know what i'm talking about in the media they're normalizing this Thing where men and women are the same commercials television movies you know what i'm talking about in fashion unisex fashion is in vogue jeans and sort of things like that in athletics we're talking about equal pay with men and women we're talking about transgender athletes competing against women meaning men who cash rate themselves competing as women and saying that's okay Women are fighting in MMA and beating each other up, and the culture loves it. Military, I mean, you look at a commercial from the army, and oftentimes it's promoting a woman to join the armed forces. I saw one commercial where the man is at home greeting the wife coming home from, from battle, from being deployed. Things have been reversed. In academia, whether it's in universities or in the schools, there's indoctrination taking place to train up the mind to think that there is no difference. In the government, there's policies, political figures who are supporting this sort of thing. Now, just like in the time of Corinth, even in the church, egalitarian models where men and women have no distinct roles, even marriage and wedding definitions are getting blurred. Even in the church, Things have crept in, just like in the time of Corinth. This is a critical time that we're in, church family. It's a serious matter. Absolutely serious. If you can't feel it right now, you haven't been awake. I mean, you could feel it. You could almost touch it with your hand. Can you not? Everything is so in your face. Everything. 
everything. It's a very aggressive approach. I think you know what I'm talking about. Therefore, the preaching must be very clear, very explicit. My role today is to lay bare the word of God so it's crystal clear. There's no misunderstanding. I want to make sure by the end of this sermon, we all understand how men and women are to function. That's my role. That's a privilege that God's given me to do. And so the pulpit must be the source of truth. The pulpit must be the source of reason. Amen? This is what we're here for. So we need to be clear about today, how has God designed or ordered men and women to function at church, but also in the home? So today, just to follow along, the three points are going to be this. I'm going to keep asking the question, why headship? Why headship? And these are the three points that we're going to use to answer that question. Why headship? First point. Headship is rooted in God, if you want to fill that out ahead of time. Point number two. Why headship? Headship is rooted in creation. We're going to go back to Genesis. We're going to get into a time machine that's going to take us even further back today. All right? And the third point, why headship? Headship is rooted in respect. Respect. All right? So let's go to verse 2 here before we, and this will kind of frame up Paul's uh, thoughts here. Verse 2. Now, okay, so this is kind of like Paul saying, now I'm turning to the next issue. If you guys recall, in chapter 7 of Corinthians, Paul was addressing a letter that was written to him. The Corinthians wrote him a letter to say, what about this, Paul? What about that, Paul? Hey, Paul, this is what's going on at the church. Are you okay with this? So Paul is addressing the next point. He goes, now I praise you because you remember me in everything. Thank you for consulting me. Thank you for uh, uh, submitting to my uh, my leadership and my authority over you. Thank you. So I, and then he goes, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. So what is this thing called traditions? In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says, Good job that you're standing firm and holding fast to the teachings or the traditions that were handed down to you. So traditions talking about teachings, doctrinal issues that Paul taught the Corinthian church and other churches. Sometimes traditions could be seen as a bad thing. Obviously, if it's man's traditions, that's not binding. But if it's God's word setting up doctrine, that is binding forever. So the Corinthian church maintained a certain level of orthodoxy. Right? They, they, did not, they did not deny who Christ is. They didn't deny his death and resurrection. But there's some things that were taking place. So after this praise, Paul is going to get into it now. Like any good parent, <laughs> like any good coach, like any good teacher or pastor, he starts with positive. Let's start off with a positive. Good job, church. And then verse 3 sits, sits into the next point here. Okay, so why headship? Point number one, headship is rooted in God. Headship is rooted in God. Now, let me just say this much. This, uh, this idea of headship is not a novel idea. This is not a new thing. The church for 2,000 years has recognized headship, men and, men, men and women relationships and how we relate to one another, how we relate to one another in the home, how we relate to one another in the church. This has been kind of, this has been accepted for 2,000 years. Egalitarianism or this kind of this idea that roles are for everybody has been a more of a novel, more recent idea, just so you know this. So Paul is giving, taking us back. In verse 3 here, why headship? Headship is rooted in God, verse 3. But, right, there it is, there's a contrast. I praise you, but, here it is, there's a contrast from the praise. You, meaning plural, but I want you, plural, meaning the whole Corinthian church, to understand. So Paul is saying, I want to clear something up with you. 
This is important that we don't understand from the culture. We're not looking to Roman culture to understand this, but we're looking to God. And the idea of of head, this word head is going to show up over 10 times in this section. This word head, kephale, in the original language, dominates this section. Over 10 times, Paul uses the word head. Head. What does head mean, or what does kephale mean? Well, in the Greek, it could... It just means literal head, anatomical head, head of a person, head of an animal. It just means head. Or in a metaphorical sense, head is talking about authority. Head is talking about authority. Wayne Grudem, a scholar, has done a lot of work on this word head, kephale, and he studied 2,336 words when it was used in Greek literature during that era. All right, And basically... Over 2,000 times, what did head, what did kephale mean? It meant head. Okay, just like physical head, anatomical head. But metaphorically, it was used to describe authority, ruler, headship. All right, so this is what this is talking about. So the issue is authority. And I want to look at verse 3, because verse 3 is a foundational verse that sets up everything here in our talk today, in this sermon that we have today. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. It starts with, with God, the Godhead. Headship is rooted in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then there's man. The Bible says God is the head of Christ. How does that work? Pastor, I thought they were equal, and, and yes, they are. Equal in substance, Equal in nature, equal in honor, equal in glory and power. Absolutely equal. But do you remember whose plan, whose predetermined plan was it to send Jesus to save his people? It was the Father. The Father. Do you remember Jesus praying in the garden? Fathers, there's another way. Let this cup pass before me. As he was agonizing. But what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Christ. Christ, the Messiah, was submitted to the Father. Remember what he said, John 17, 4? I glorified you, as he's praying to the Father, I glorified you, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ was all about submitting to the Father and obeying the Father. Not that there wasn't dialogue, not that there wasn't uh, a deep uh, 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 agonizing in the garden. Christ was saying... But you, what you want, I trust you, Father. And then it says, Christ is the head of every man. That's pretty clear. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of every man. Someday, every knee will bow. It's not happening yet. Someday, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to happen. And as a church, we already recognize this. Jesus Christ is our head. Now right here, the next progression is the man or the husband is the head of a woman or of, of the wife. This is how this works. There's order in God's economy. If you want to read Ephesians chapter 5, that would be helpful. But let me just read a section for Paul's writing and, and, and how he uses head as well. Ephesians 5.22. I've been doing a lot of premarital counseling. This is a very key verse to helping wives and husbands understand what they're getting into. Okay? Ephesians 5 says this, 22, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Talking about authority. And he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, we submit to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Obviously, this is a loving leadership. This is a loving headship where men were, were called to die for our wives, to serve them. But in no unclear terms, Paul is talking about authority here. God the Father, Christ his Son, the church. And even in church and marriage, there's order with men and women. Now, that is the, the foundational piece here. Verses 4 to 6, now Paul is then gives a very interesting application. It's interesting if we don't understand it, and the more we understand it, we get it. So let me just go ahead and talk about verse 4 through 6 here. Headship, how is headship lived out in Corinth? All right, there's talking about, this is talking about public activities in the life of the church. All right, how the church related to one another in the public setting, such as service, Bible studies, maybe branch life, those small groups, those sort of things. And he, Paul talks about praying and prophesying. What is prayer? That's communicating with God. Amen? All Christians should be praying privately, but also publicly. That's why we pray here publicly. Prophesying, this is communicating what God is saying. It could be through teaching, through preaching, all right, certain application from the word. This is prophesying. Now, this issue of head covering is going to come up. Now, what is the issue here? What's the deal here, Paul? Why are you talking about head covering? Because as I look around, I don't see many of us wearing head coverings, right? And, and I'm going to explain why. Head coverings was a cultural sign of submission during that time in Rome. All right, In Corinth, if women wore head coverings to show respect to their husbands, similar to wearing like a wedding band. Women also had head coverings to show respect to the leadership of the church. This is just what was communicated. It was a very big sign of communication. Covered women were considered respectable women. They, either, they could have been married, and so therefore somebody's covering them. But an uncovered woman without a veil on would and could communicate that she's sexually available for hire, a prostitute. This is how the uncovered women were viewed as in that time. So this was making a huge statement. If you were to come to the service in Corinth, and you come with un, uncovered, and you start praying and prophesying, that was making a huge statement now to the men and to the women. It's basically saying you're making a big anti-establishment statement there. Right, so it was a it was a very feministic movement right there. By saying that, it's communicating a lot. So the lines were being blurred, and this was taking place in Corinth. And in essence, some of the women, some of the sisters, were saying, "I want to be treated like a man." There is no difference. So with that cultural context in mind, let's read verse four. Verse four says, "Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying." disgraces his head. This is almost like a hyperbolic situation. Like, what man will actually do this? It's basically making a huge statement of role reversal. This, wouldn't, this probably didn't happen. Paul is making a hyperbolic, like an incredible statement. It's just if a man were to come his head covered, and while he's praying, prophesying, he would basically be dishonoring his head. This is what the Bible says. Who's his head? Christ is his head. He'd be dishonoring Christ because blatantly this man would be just 
just denying the order that Christ has set forth for the church. Let's look at verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered. So Paul's making a point. This was happening while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Right? What is this saying? So there are women praying, prophesying in various settings. And she was disgracing her head. That's the, her husband and the leadership of the church. This is a huge statement. This was an oops, I forgot to wear my veil today. This is, this is a big deal. And basically usurping the authority of the church and at the home. I'm taking it, I'm taking it over. That's what she was saying. And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 5, For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So if you were to shave your head back then, you would either be considered maybe like a prostitute or someone said, I don't, I'm not going to go along with this establishment. I don't, I'm not going along with this social construct. I'm my own person. It meant the same thing what Paul's saying. But verse 6 here, I want us to point this out here. This is a beautiful part of Paul's writing. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. He's repeating the same point. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, comma, comma, what does it say here, brothers and sisters? Comma, let her cover her head. Let her cover her head. Paul is appealing for, to a willful submission to do the right thing, let's do the right thing because it's communicating something. There's a beauty when there's willful submission taking place. Paul's appealing in the right way. Paul's not trying to be strong-handed. Let her cover her head. Sisters, cover up. It's the right thing to do, don't you think? That's what he's saying. And he basically, this is a willful submission because some of the women, some of the sisters in this church, perhaps some of the sisters here, thinking, you know what? I'm actually more mature than my than the leadership. I know more scripture. I, I've studied this longer. I've been a Christian longer. Maybe you're sitting in a situation where your husband isn't even a Christian, right? I mean, I can see the, the, the conflict in your heart and your mind on that one. But there is a way where Paul says, let her cover her head. Willful submission. There's something beautiful about that. There's something that encourages leadership when that type of submission takes place. Amen? So Paul is appealing to do the right thing here. Because, why? Headship is rooted back to the Trinity. The Son, Jesus Christ himself, was submitted to the Father. Brothers, lead like Christ. Sisters, submit like Christ. Right? Right? This is what Paul is appealing to. Now let's get to our second point. Why headship? Point number two, headship is rooted in creation. Headship is rooted in creation. We're going to go back into a time machine here. We're going to go back to Genesis in the beginning. We're going to go back to the garden here in a few moments here. But verse 7 says, For a woman ought not to have his head covered, uh, for a man ought not to have his head covered, comma, since he is the image and glory of God. Man is made in the image of God, it says right here. Man, God has authority, and men, brothers, were made to function to provide leadership for our people. Although we're not perfectly like Christ, obviously we're not gods, but we're meant to image God in this way, to provide leadership, to provide authority, to provide covering. 
And when we do this, we glorify God because we're acting like him in the design that he's called us to live out. Amen? And this is right here, verse 7 at the end. But the woman is a glory man. But the woman brings glory. Sisters, you bring glory to your husbands. You bring glory to the leadership of the church when you're submitted. Because you're saying, I respect this order. I respect you. There's nothing quite, anything more powerful when husbands, you know what I'm talking about, when your wives look at you with belief in their eyes. You're willing to die for them, amen? This is so powerful. Sisters, you don't know, understand the power that you have to ignite your men to lead. When you look at them, say, all right, I trust you. We talked it all out. Doesn't mean you don't speak your mind, obviously. My wife speaks her mind with me. But in the end, I trust you. If, there, if you're at odds, I trust you. That level of accountability, that level of motivation that takes place is like grips your heart. Does it not, brothers? Just like Jesus in John 17, 4 says, I've glorified you, having accomplished the work that you give me to do. My sisters, there's a noble noble purpose that God has called you to be a part of. And you glorify God, but also you ignite your men to lead. You ignite the men of the church to lead. This is something that must take place. But like I said earlier in this point, headship is rooted in creation. So let's go back in time now. Verse 8 talks about, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. All right? And in verse 9, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2. I'm grateful for Sister Irene reading that for us. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read a few verses here. Let's turn to verse 16 here. So we're going back now. We just just zoom back now to the garden. Thousands of years even earlier before this. Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. The Lord commanded the man, this is Adam saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. God is in control. He instructs Adam, I'm giving you a stewardship, all right? But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in, that, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Right now there's order. God, Adam, he gives Adam very clear Lucid instructions, what to do and what not to do. Okay, let's read to verse 17 or verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And there, now there's Eve. God is ordering things. God is, in, God is the authority of all. Then there's Adam. And then there's Eve, the helpmate. And then and there's beasts after that. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he will call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was the same. You're a bird. You're a dolphin. You're a platypus, right? I mean, this is what Adam, he's exercising authority over the beast. So this is God's design from the beginning, from creation. God, man, woman, beast. This is the order that God meant. And Satan, from the very beginning, what he looked, sought out to do was to flip that around. So let's fast forward to chapter 3 of Genesis here, okay? The very next chapter, 
This is the fall. This is where, this is where humankind was corrupted. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Serpent is a beast. All right? There he is. The beast is at the top right now. Which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And there's woman now. The beast, the snake, is instructing the woman now. Something wrong with that order. Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. So so there's a little bit of a debate going on there. Verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. The woman submitted to the beast. And what happens tragically, even more tragically, is this. She gave also to her husband with her. Adam was there the whole time allowing this to happen. And he ate. Adam submitted to Eve. And they all disregarded God. Before the fall, God, man, woman, beast. At the fall, beast, woman, man, God. This is what Satan has attempted to do from the very beginning, is to corrupt and, and, and distort leadership and, and order in the church and in the life of, of a Christian home, or any home at that. And this has been his strategy. He's been quite effective, I'll tell you that much. Quite effective. And this is where we need to understand how this is working out today. There may be a tension within our hearts right now. As I preach this, is there a tension right now? There could be, but let me explain why there could be a tension. Uh, Let's go to Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. We understand this. Praise God for mothers. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet, this is the tension, your desire will be for your husband. There is a curse due to the fall. Yet your desire will be for your husband. This word desire is a very interesting word as you study it. In the Hebrew, it carries the meaning of your desire to rule over your husband. Your desire to have your husband's authority. So there's a tension within all of us in our fallenness where we like to rule over the men. And look what happens to the men. And he will rule over you. Not lead, not care, not cover, but rule. Brutish, chauvinistic behavior, which is unacceptable before the Lord. This is one of the products of the fall where all of a sudden leadership was just kind of like, it became the battle of sexes from the very beginning. (laughs) From the very beginning. And culture has followed suit. Definitely has. So let's go back to Second, First Corinthians eleven now. So we're going to zoom back in time here, a couple thousand years, fast forward back into the time of Corinth here, to the first century A.D. Verse ten. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Pastor, what does that mean? Because of the angels. Let's keep in mind the angels are perfectly submitted beings to God. They're there to serve God. Twenty four seven. I don't think they have time there, but constantly. That's my best way of saying constantly. But keep in mind the background of angels. What did they experience in heaven? 
Do you remember? A third of the angels fell as it rebelled against God. But the faithful angels were just faithfully connected to God. They seen this happen. They seen what happened to Satan and the demons. So the angels that are observing life in the church, the life in your home, it's highly offensive to these angels who are perfectly submitted to the Father if order is corrupted in the home and in the church. We're able to glorify God even to the heavenly beings by how ordered we are in the home and in the church. This is a big deal now. So do we get an idea that this idea of headship is not a novel idea? This goes right back to the eternal Trinitarian Godhead, how God has been operating. It goes back to creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. This is not a novel idea. And in church history, after the church's birth, after Pentecost, this was the natural, common sense, accepted idea how authority works. Anything other than this has been more of a novel thought in the church more recently, last couple decades. All of a sudden, we know better. All we got to do is go backwards in time to understand and how deep this is. This is rooted in God himself and in creation. Let's go to point number three here. All right. Why headship? Why headship? Well, number three, headship is rooted in respect. This is huge now, brothers Sisters, this is huge right here. Verse 11, Paul kind of balances it out. Look at his wording. However, right? Bam, this is what authority is. Oh my goodness, you might have been like reeling right there. However, Paul says, hold on, let me add a little balance. Let me add a little symmetry to what I'm talking about. However, in the Lord, in Christ, brothers and sisters, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Paul's giving some balance here, right? In the Lord, Galatians 3, 28 says, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor rich or poor, nor slave or free, no man or woman. We're all one in Christ. Amen. We need one another. Paul's reminding us we're independent of one another. We're not, de- uh, we're not independent of one another. We are dependent on one another. We need one another. That's what Paul is saying. We absolutely need one another. Verse 12, for as a woman originates from the man, now there's only one, that was Eve and Adam, that's it. But every single man, every single woman will come from a woman after that, amen? We can all attest to that. So also the man has his birth through the woman, and, and all things originate from God. So in the Lord, if you're in Christ, man or woman, doesn't matter, we're one in Christ. We need to understand that there needs to be a deep, profound, mutual respect for one another. We need to understand that. That means this. This is what this means. What, how, how can we describe what respect means? All right, that, this means you have regard for one another. I need you. I need you. And you need me. And what happens, just like any good team or any good family or any good body, you know what happens? You develop this Accountability that says, I will not let you down. I need to do my part so that you flourish, and you're going to do your part to help me flourish. Respect. This is how any good relationship works when there's respect. 
I value you. You value me. I need to do my part. You need to do your part. I will not let you down. I mean, as a senior pastor, brand new senior pastor, I've been really encouraged by our leadership, our staff, our leaders have been supportive. The church family is so ultra gracious to me and my family. It's easy to lead. It's easy. It's not that challenging. It's easy. Just do the right thing, pastor. I'm counting on you to lead. Provide some leadership. Teach us the Bible. Be true to the scriptures. Live a genuine life. There's no secret life in you, right, pastor? I'm trusting you in this. And I'm just telling you, I understand my role, but it makes my role a whole lot easier. It lights me up thinking about our church. It gives me an extra level of motivation. Of course, I'm accountable to Christ. I definitely feel that. But I feel a deeper level of connection with one another when I feel it from you in that way. I can't let these people down. I can't let Charlotte and the kids down. I can't let the church family down. That's what happens when there's willful submission, when there's respect. You know what I'm talking about. If you took in over a new job at work, or if you're a brand new husband, or you've been a husband for a while, you know how that lights you up. You know how that encourages you. It's real. This is not just some feeling that's unique to me. This is a real feeling that you feel right here. Right here. It's right there. So I just want to keep encouraging church family. You have a significant role in the leadership by how you affect me, how you affect the other staff members, how you affect the lay leaders. Respect communicates a lot. Man, I can't let you down. (laughs) You're trusting me to do this well, right? And this is how it works. This is how body life works in the church. This is how healthy body life works in the church. There's a healthy dynamic that takes place when men and women operate this way. This is a beautiful thing. The angels in heaven are praising God. God is glorified. Our children, people that we lead, are, are flourishing under this type of, uh, of care. I mean, in the home, is this happening? In the life of this church, is this happening? And it brings glory to God, ultimately. I mean, think about it. It says this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You'll write that down if you want to reference it later. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Notice we're spending a lot of time in Genesis here, in the beginning, Right? It says, let us make man in our image. So that he made them in our image, made a man, made him woman, made him both. How does man and woman glorify God? Well, one element, one big facet of our Trinitarian God is that when we're properly submitted to each other, we act like God. Right? Because we just described how the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are in cooperation with one another. When men and women are cooperating this way, It brings glory to God. We're living like the Trinitarian Godhead that we say we believe in. Amen? Very practical. It's very simple, very straightforward. Those are the three points. And Paul, I'm going to give you one one section of application here. Paul in verse 13 says this. He puts it on the church. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature herself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for, her, for a covering. That All that's simply saying is this. Brothers, if you have long hair, that's fine. That's not what it says. Brothers and sisters, whether it's estrogen or testosterone, I'm losing my hair. Testosterone makes a man a man physically, 
but also causes one to lose their hair. Estrogen allows hair to keep growing. And it's a grace in general that women are able to receive. Just even a natural order, God has designed this way. But the big idea is this. What communicates respect for each other? What communicates respect to a woman? What communicates respect to a man? This is what Paul is charging us to consider, okay? So let me ask you a question. Like, are we to wear head coverings today? How are we supposed to reconcile this, Pastor? Right? You should be thinking this well. Or even long hair or short hair. How are we supposed to reconcile this? Well, let me read you John Calvin, one of the great reformers. He has a quote here. When he's asked about, can a preacher wear a head covering when it's cold? This is kind of the very practical things that you may be wondering. For we should not be so hidebound by principles as to think a teacher is doing anything wrong in wearing a skull cap on his head, meaning, this is what John Calvin's saying. When he's speaking to the people from the pulpit, but all that Paul is after is that it may be made clear that the man is in authority and that the woman is in subjection to him. And that is done when the man uncovers his head in the sight of the congregation, even if he puts the skull cap on again afterwards so as to not catch a cold. I mean, so the big idea John Calvin is saying is this. What communicates respect and humility towards one another? What will help deepen your relationship and trust with one another? Do that. So 2,000 years ago, head covering was a big deal. It doesn't mean anything to us today. Amen? But what can you do to demonstrate respect to your husband? What can you do to demonstrate respect to the leadership of the church? Brothers, what can you do to demonstrate respect for your wives and for the sisters of our church? Do it. Do it, right? So I'm just going to finish up right here. How is headship lived out today at Evergreen SGV? All right, this is just my thoughts as I was praying over this. Lord, how do we apply this? Okay, in the home, in the home, man, do you see yourselves as the pastors of your home? If you have a wife, your wife, if you have children, your children in the home, do you see me as your supplement, your helper to help you? But ultimately, you are the one to pastor your family. What does that look like? That means you're the protector, the provider, the priest of your home. A lot of peas there. You're to Nourish your wives. Teach them the scriptures. If she knows more than you, that's okay. Catch up, but teach her what you know. Emphasize what you know is to be true. Take every sermon. You just learned three points. Emphasize that to your family this week. That's what I'm here to help equip you. That's our goal. That's really our role. That's what I've been talking about in premarital counseling if you married this woman, you are to be her pastor. Are you ready for this challenge? Are you ready for this task? And your job is to help her be, love Christ more and become more like Christ. Sisters, are we encouraging our men to lead in the home? You may be that sister that I'm talking about. You've been a Christian all your life. You have a gift of teaching. You have a deep love for the word. Praise God. Amen. That's how it should be. However, it takes a certain level of maturity to still empower your man to lead. A certain level of humility. 
a certain level of love and respect to allow him to lead and to encourage him. Are you praying for him that he will grow in leadership? Are you praying that other men will come around him to help exhort him to greater levels of leadership? Nagging and those sort of things does not help, okay? Men coming alongside another man, that's usually the more appropriate way how men are spurred on to love and good deeds. That's how it works. Make him believe that you believe in him as your leader. Nobody's perfect. All right, there's only one Jesus, okay? <laughs> so, so let's lower our expectations down some, right? But this is a powerful thing that, sisters, you are able to do. Children. Children. Are you obeying your parents? Are you obeying your parents? Teenage children, are you obeying your parents? Are you obeying your parents? I mean, there's order. There is the order. Children, you're part of that too. Now in the church, in the church, this is where uh, we get to live this out corporately with the one another. We come out of our, our home units and then we get to come do life together in the body life at Evergreen SUV. Men, we need men to actively serve. We need men to get involved, to exercise your gifts. We need men to be involved. We, like Pastor Malcolm made an appeal. We need help reopening the church. What a great emblem that men are leading by serving, by people seeing you serve. Men, we need you. In the life of the church, are you living out lives that are worth imitating, right? Brothers, this is our charge. Whether you have a pastoral role, whether you're married or not, you are an emblem. You're the image of God walking in, these, in, in church. Are you representing God well, brothers? Now, keep in mind now, I'm talking to myself too. This is not like a just talking to all the men. I'm speaking and exhorting to myself. You hear me saying this, I'm accountable to this as well. My wife knows I need to continue to grow as a leader. My staff knows I need to continue to grow as a leader. So I'm talking to myself as well. But please continue to pray. We're, we're praying about eldership. Men are to be the teachers, the preachers of our church. Men are called to be the pastors, the elders of our church. We're praying for elders uh, to be raised up. Please continue to join us in praying for our church family. All right? So, I just want to give us one word of encouragement here. Brother Marcus Pang read this to, to us earlier, so thank you. Philippians, let's turn to Philippians here. If any of us are having a difficult time with this, I just really want us to drink deeply from Philippians chapter 2 here. Okay? You heard it once already. You're going to hear it again today. Evidently, the Lord wants us to hear this. Okay? Paul says, I want you to understand, but verse, a chap, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 who although he existed in the form of God, Jesus is God. Jesus is equal to the Father. Same value, same dignity, same honor. So if you're reconciling in your heart right now, if I submit, that means I'm less than. That's what the world teaches. I believe that's what the world teaches. If you have a submissive role, you're not as valuable. Your value is capped. But right here, the Bible, Paul is clearly saying that although he existed in the form of God, Jesus Christ is God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? 
He submitted, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or a bondservant. This word is slave. Slave, he submitted to the father as, a, as his master and being made in the likeness of human men. Verse 8, but being found in appearance as a man. Imagine that God taking the form of a man, a slave man at that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So brothers and sisters, this is our accountability here. What type of leadership are we to give? Sacrificial leadership. Sisters, how are we to submit? Look to Christ. Equal. Men and women, completely equal. We're completely one. In Christ, particularly, we're sons and daughters of God. But there's different roles. Roles doesn't mean better or worse. It just means this is how God has ordered it. Amen? I'm going to just read this last thing that we sang here. In, in, in the song, Here is Love, this last section, he says this, we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man, are intertwined. We're part of the Godhead, brothers and sisters. This is what happened when Christ died for us and we became part of the body of Christ. We're part of this Godhead. And the Godhead acts this way. Therefore, when we act this way, we give glory to the Godhead. Amen? It's much deeper than us. It's much deeper than this time in this life. Let's pray. Father, let's thank you for your word. Thank you how your word is so lucid, how how clear it is. Thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you gave us clear guidelines on how to function as a people, as a church family. So, Father, I thank you, God, for this clear teaching that you've given us. Lord, I repent for our church for not leading the way you called us to do as men. None of us have led perfectly. Some of us have just even decided not to lead. Forgive us, Lord. We acknowledge this. We all need to grow as leaders. And Father, also, we repent of going against authority figures that you set in our lives, whether it's men, whether it's women or children, Lord. We repent of this. Help us to submit willfully to the authority figures that you set in our life, ultimately to you, Jesus, our Lord, our head. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for the elders that you are raising up in this church, whoever they are, Lord, please continue to raise them up so they can serve lovingly like your son, Jesus Christ, and lead well to care for the church family. So thank you, Father, for this time to preach your word. Thank you that we get we're made in your image and we get to be part of the Godhead forever. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.